Ever wondered how a book gets made into a movie? Or how to master the art of cooking? Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. On our podcast, we're going to be serving you a fresh perspective of the entertainment industry alongside our favorite celebrity guests. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. It's for rolling a bench in the biggest way possible. Hanging out a bad state of broken data, bad apple with a bad attitude. Hanging around a bunch of bad, bad, bad tape, bad luck, bad dude, bad, bad, bad attitude, bad vibes. Another FOTB pod, son. That's what they're talking about. A little 000 part two, part dos. You got to love it. It's all happening. So they're back in Monterey and they show the local drug street dealers accepting a shipment of kilos of blow via a gigantic sand truck. So the truck is filled with sand and it drives up this giant hill in Monterey through the neighborhoods and the muddy streets, third world style. Dogs running around, itching their fleas, the whole deal. People working, grinding. And then the truck stops and these kids jump on it and they dig out all these backpacks filled with kilos of blow. And they take the backpacks and they go up to their operation, which is an apartment type setup. And they go in there and they got all these chicks in there again in their bras and panties carving up blow and cutting it and getting ready for distribution. So they got a whole giant thing going where they are just grinding away and cutting blow and packaging it to sell on the streets. And then they take one of the kilos and give it to this kid and he goes to this restaurant to meet these chicks. It's like a coffee shop and eatery and they got the whole deal going there like tacos, burritos and cocaine coffee, I guess, because they got a big barrel in the back filled with beans and the kid gives her the kilo. She shoves the kilo inside the coffee beans and she reaches into another vat of coffee beans and pulls out a giant pack of money and I mean lots of money. And the kid puts the money in his backpack. The kid must be like 14, 15 years old. He's hitting on one of the chicks back at the cocaine cutting place. He's asking her out on a date. And the boss is like, do your job, idiot. Take this. Go to this restaurant. Do your thing. So he goes and does it. Boom. He's coming back. He's got the money. He's coming back. It's late. It's dark. And as he's walking, he notices that somebody's following him. He sees a truck with dudes in it eyeing him. Then he turns around and looks the other way and he sees soldiers chasing him. He takes off running, cuts through an alley, goes through a bunch of little nooks and crannies in the neighborhood, jumps up, climbs stairs, goes up on the roofs. He's jumping roof to roof. Meanwhile, this Sergeant Corrupto, your boy that's been dirty the entire show, that worked for the captain, that killed the captain, he's working for the cartel. He's now telling them that he's going to run the streets of Monterey And remember, he told the Liras, he said, you need to sell retail. We got to control the retail. Forget about wholesale. We got to do everything. Wholesale, retail, do it all. Control the streets. So he's chasing this kid, jumping roof to roof. And the kid jumps down and hides under a van. And then the guy jumps down with his machine gun looking for him. He's walking all over the place looking for him. And you think that he's not found him. They showed a kid showing up at the drug warehouse later with the money in his backpack. And he knocks on the door and they're guarded by guns and everything. And the guy's talking to him through the crack. He's like, listen, bro, I got away. These dudes with guns chased me. We got a problem. They're on the streets. 
They were chasing me. They tried to kill me. I got away. I got away. Let me, they're still looking for me. Let me in. What's the problem? So they let him in. And right when they let him in, of course, the army dudes, the corrupt dudes, slammed through the door. They're right behind the kid hiding. You didn't know it. That's the first time you found out that the kid had been made. He'd been found under the van. So they crashed in. And then they went in. And they took them all hostage. Went upstairs where they were cutting all the coke. And they got them all and put them on their knees and tied their wrists. So they were all in a very humble position. And the leader of the drug gang, the leader of the street sales, the guy running the whole operation, they got him on the ground. So they start doing a video and they're going to put it on the web of this group. And they obviously, they mean business. There is just no getting around it. So they call themselves the firm and they're going to control things from now on. They warn all the people on the video. They're like, you're going to work for us. You're going to get a paycheck. You're going to be paid according to what you do for us. And at least you'll be making a living. And those that defy us, those that don't agree with what we're doing and don't want to be a part of it, here's what we're going to do to them. So they take the leader of this drug street firm that is running it now and the firm that they call themselves, the guy, they pin him down on the ground right in front of all the employees, all the women that cut the coke, all the little boys that are their runners. And they got them all on the ground tied up. And then they take the lead drug guy and they pin him down on the ground. And the sergeant takes a giant four-foot-long sledgehammer. I mean, the most gigantic sledgehammer you ever saw in your life. And he takes it and swings it through the air and implodes this guy's chest in the very first swing, the very first smash to his chest, right to his heart. The guy's dead because he's screaming when they got him held down. Let me go, let me go, let me go. And then wham, one time, just right through the heart. And it just imploded his entire chest and it went right through his heart and killed him dead and then just for good measure he swung it again and did it again so two swings to the chest i mean the hole in his chest was the size of a football helmet i mean it was that big it just left a gigantic hole like he had been shot with a sawed off shotgun and they just obliterated this dude and all of these little girls and boys were screaming and crying to their mommies and they were scared to death and the guy looked in the camera said we run this now this is our house You work for us now. You're going to be cutting and selling coke for us. We in charge now. Chuck in charge, son. This ain't no joke. It's the fern, son. So your boy Manuel, who's the obvious sergeant bad guy, he goes to the Lara's to pick up his cash for the job that he performed. And they gave him giant envelopes filled with tons of cash. And he gave it to his five soldiers. And then he took his envelope full of money and went down to the house of... The guy that he killed in his troop, you know, the guy that they hung off at a bridge that they blamed for being the narc. Remember, the captain said, we got a mole, we got a narc, we got to find out who it is. So he framed his friend, Rabbit, who was with the chick, pregnant, and they walked into the bar and blew everyone away and shot him in the chest. So he killed his friend. He killed his own soldier, one of his guys. And he went down to tell her he's there to pay his respects. And then he gave her an envelope full of money. And then... She's like, why didn't you defend him when they said he was a narc? And he just looked at her like, the army says whatever they're going to say. There's nothing I can do about it. And she's like, wait, I know you're good. I know he loved you. I know you loved him. I appreciate you bringing me the money. And I appreciate you coming and saying that you pay your respects and that you loved Rabbit and all this other nonsense. Meanwhile, the whole time he knows he did it. He knows he's basically with his phony ass religion, his phony ass God, his phony ass BS that he's the killer. He's the bad guy. He's been the bad guy since the whole thing started. He's a piece of shack. 
So Chris is on the ship, obviously, with all the blow, a billion dollars worth of blow, and the crew has gone away in a dinghy, and they tried to burn the ship and sink it. Chris stopped it by putting on the sprinkler system. The crew sailed off. The crew knew he was alive, though, when they looked out the window and saw him alive on the ship, and he had stopped the fire. And they saw him on there, so he's on the ship by himself, no power, things sailing adrift in the Atlantic. He's trying to get to Senegal. Eventually, someone spots him in the middle of the ocean, a ship. He sets off a flare. They tow him into Senegal. He gets to Senegal, and the army and the popo say they're going to seize the ship until they find out what happened to the crew, until they can find out what happened to the captain and all of his crew, and then they're going to take all of his containers off of the ship and store them and not release those containers until everything's straight up and legit. He's like, I'm losing millions of dollars if I don't get this ship to where I got to be for my family's business. And the guy's like, I don't care about your money, and I'm in charge, and you're not going anywhere, and you're going to wait until we figure this out, and you're here in Senegal until this is resolved. So he goes into the streets of Senegal. It's crazy. It's like nothing you've ever seen. There's millions of people, and it's just a third-world slumlord-type place. And everywhere you go, he doesn't want anyone looking at him, touching him, nothing. Meanwhile, he's sick. He's tripping. He's lost all of his medication for his Huntington's. And he's tweaking. He's freaking. He's having muscle spasms. He's clearly sick. He's losing it. And he goes to the pharmacy and he asks for these drugs he needs. And the pharmacist won't give him the drugs without a prescription. He's like, Pharrell, you, bro. You suck. And then... He's leaving the place. He's angry. And some dude on the side of the street says, I can help you. And he's like, don't touch me. And the guy's like, listen, bro, I know what you need. I can help you. Just come with me. And then he finally is like so desperate. He goes with him and the guy takes him to some club and he's trying to help him out. Or so it seems. So eventually he goes to this club and this guy takes him into some back room and he gives him some voodoo medicine, some neon green liquid that he can like shoot droplets of it into his mouth. It's the only medicine the guy has for what his problem is. He's like, that's not what I'm looking for. He goes, that's what I got. And he's like, it's either that or nothing. I mean, you can sit there and suffer with your muscle spasms and you're dying. So if you don't want it, so be it. I don't give a rat's ass. Meanwhile, he's like, yo, what else you got? He's like, what do you want? He goes, I need weed. So he ends up setting him up with a big sack of buds and then he eventually takes the medicine and he's scared to death to take it because it's bright green liquid. It looks like Gatorade. And then he eventually has the onions to drop a shot of it in his mouth. Next thing you know, his sister shows up at the airport. She flies into Senegal to the rescue and he picks her up at the airport and things are getting very interesting. They want their ship and their containers because they're filled with a billion worth of Rio de Janeiro. Yeah, yeah, Yevana, that Sikule. So the bottom line is Emma's there now with Chris in Senegal, and they got their ship, the Miranda, trapped in the port. The feds won't let them leave with their ship. The police won't let them leave. The, every single person customs, they won't give them what they want. They try to pay them off. They try to bribe them. They give them money. They take their money. Every time they offer them a bribe, they take the bribe, and then they still won't let them leave with the ship. It's got five tons of cocaine on it. So eventually, Chris goes back to the guy that gave him the dope and the lime green fake medicine. The guy that gave him his sack and then the medicine that kept him from dying when he was having muscle spasms and seizures. So they became friends, obviously, that he did a deal with him and he trusted him and took his drugs and took his medicine. And eventually he goes back to him. He's at some big, huge parade where they have giant monster dudes fighting each other in a pit like wrestling. It's like sumo wrestling. 
and he gives him a wad of cash. He's like, here, bet on your boy. His boy loses the fight. He doesn't even care. He gave him five grand to lose, and he lost. He didn't even care. He said, I need a favor. He said, you said to me that you were the king of the port. And the guy's like, I am. He's like, I need to get a shipment out of a container down there that they've seized on me. They've taken my ship. They've taken my containers. And I got to get the containers out of there. He goes, what's in the containers? He goes, chili peppers. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm not doing anything with a bunch of chili peppers. What's in the containers? He's like, look, there's five tons of cocaine in the chili peppers. And then the guy was turning his head. So then they go to the port late at night with a truck. And the guys in the port let him right through because the guy knows everybody. He's got massive juice down at the port. They let him through. And it looks as though there's a chance he might be able to help him. So the dudes that helped him get the medicine and the weed, help him steal all of the blow, five tons of blow out of the port. When they're rolling with the blow out of the port, here comes the popo. They see him leaving with it. And then they chase him. And there's this dramatic chase scene with the smugglers shooting at the popo in their cars. And then right at the end, when they're about to get busted, a giant truck backs out and cuts off the cops. They have to slam and wreck their cars to avoid crashing into the truck. Then the guy gets out of the truck, sets the truck on fire with like a bomb, and the cops are screwed, and they get away with a blow. So they drive the blow to a safe location, and Chris cuts a deal with his boys from Senegal, giving them 50 keys to do whatever they want with it to get his blow out of the country. When his sister shows up, Emma freaks out and says, you're an idiot. What are you doing, you stupid ass? And then she right to his face tells him that her father said, don't ever let Chris in the business. Whatever you do, keep him out of the business. So she said it right to him, and then he slapped her across the face and called her a liar. Then she called her connect in Senegal. He came to help. He shows up at this place, says, you got to bring the trucks full of blow with me. Follow me. I got my best men. Chris gets in the car and they drive off with all the blow. When he leaves, he shakes hands with his boys from Senegal that did the deal with him and got the blow out of the containers out of the port. And he gave him the 50 keys and they hugged and said, my man, thanks a lot. So at the point where they got the stuff now, we'll see if they can get out of Senegal because every cop in the entire country is looking for him. So they get out of their jam and they leave Senegal and they're driving through the desert with their five tons of blow. They gave the one guy in Senegal 50 kilos to make it happen. Then they drive across the desert and they're in the middle, I mean to tell you, of absolutely nowhere. I kid you not, like the Sahara Desert. And then Emma's giving Chris the business about why he's got seizures. She didn't know he was having seizures. And she said, when did that start? He's like, four months ago, I started having seizures at the club. He said, I dropped shampoo and I started having a seizure. And she's like, why didn't you tell us? He's like, I didn't want anything to change in our lives. And then they just kept driving. Next thing you know, they come across these desert freaks and they are Arab and dangerous and all toting AK-47s and it is their territory. They run the Sahara Desert. They are in charge. And he's like, we ain't getting through here unless we do a deal with them. He knew one of the guys originally, but then he got out of the truck to talk to the dudes with the guns. And he's like, I'm a friend of Muhammad's. And they're like, Muhammad got killed yesterday by the French. He's dead. He's like, I'm very sorry about Muhammad. I'm very good friends with him. The guy says, who's the people in the trucks? He said, they're Americans. He said, I hate Americans. And then Omar, the guy that's taking him through the desert, the Senegalian said, 
It's simple. We got to get these trucks to where we're going. What's it going to cost? He's like, what do you got? He goes, we got blow. And he's like, 100 keys. So they got to give these Saharan desert dudes with the guns 100 kilos of blow. Now they've given up 150 kilos of their blow just to try to get their blow from one place to the next. Because of the ship incident, because of the port incident, because of Senegal, and now because of the desert, they are just losing money hand over fist with giving up all their kilos of blow. So they kept driving through the desert. They got protection now. Then all of a sudden they roll into this town and everything comes to a grinding halt as they stop and start talking to these other militants. And the next thing you know, they make Chris get out of the truck and they take him into some hotel looking place. And then they come out and they get Emma and they drag her in. They put her in a room. It's like a jail that she's being held. And none of them speak English, not a lick of it. So they can't understand each other at all. She has no clue where Chris is. And she's in this little room. And all these crazy militants are in there screaming and yelling and watching TV. And they got their AK-47s and they mean business. Meanwhile, the trucks of blow have been taken away. So... We saw them there when they pulled in. They had the blow, and then they got put in these rooms. We don't even know where Chris is, but they turned on the trucks, and the trucks were driven out with the blow on them. So God only knows where the blow is now, and they're in big trouble. So now Omar comes into the room where she's being held and tells her that there's been an attack, and all the militants that were keeping them and their drugs, they'd all been killed. And Omar told her that Chris has also been killed because they took him with them. When they went on the run, wherever the hell they took him, they took him somewhere. And then Omar said he's dead, too, and that she's got to go with him now or never. It's escape now or you're going to die. He gave her a gun. He's like, stay behind me. Stay as close as possible behind me. We're getting the Pharrell out of here. But your brother's dead. This is unbelievable. And they got a little army of five people. That's it. Emma and four dudes from Senegal trying to escape this village where these militants are absolute hyenas and ready to kill anyone that crosses their path. Suddenly, as they're escaping, they realize that they found the trucks. I don't know if the blow's on the trucks, but they're trying to get out of this town and there's nobody around and it is massively creepy and scary and it's not safe at all. And they got their little guns and that is it. They got five of them guns against this entire village of militants. Are you ready for the nation's first and only free 24-hour network dedicated to you, the betting and fantasy sports enthusiast? SportsGrid will provide you with real-time content, statistics, and gaming intelligence unlike anything you've ever seen before. Located both in the heart of New York City and inside the FanDuel Sportsbook at the Meadowlands, SportsGrid is live 18 hours a day, here to serve you, the fanatic. This is SportsGrid. Get on the grid. Have you written a book and need some insight into what comes next? Or are you passionate about cooking and want to know how to make it your career? Or maybe you just want to hear insider stories about the entertainment industry. Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. And on our podcast, Two Guys from Hollywood, we bring our expertise to the table with, of course, delicious cocktails and all kinds of recipes for you to try at home. So grab a drink and join us. We've got a wide range of celebrity guests and Hollywood insiders to discuss pop culture, publishing, and entertainment. And we'll provide you with an unfiltered and sometimes brutally honest show about Hollywood. 
As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. All hell breaks loose. The militants spot them trying to leave. They start blasting each other with these AK-47s. I mean, the gunfire, the war was insanity. I mean, they are just absolutely blasting each other to death. Gunfire everywhere, bullets flying, children running, women running, windows smashing, everything breaking, cement flying everywhere. It's like a war zone. And then finally, they're inside this building trying to get cover. And Omar gets popped in the chest with gunfire. And he's in big trouble. He's gushing blood. And suddenly, while Omar's bleeding out, here comes a car into the middle of the town, honking the horn, pulls up. Guy gets out, looks like a militant, arms up in the air. He's like... Peace, peace, and then the militants come out with their guns toward him, and you turn around, and it's Chris. He is not dead. An unbelievable development. Chris is not dead, and Emma is thrilled to see her brother. She thought he was dead. So the craziest thing happened. Originally, remember I told you that Chris had pulled up in a car, and he wasn't dead. They always show these scenes where they show the story two different ways. So the second way they showed it this time was Chris went with this militant guy, and they drove him hundreds of miles in the desert to some little village, and he went there. And halfway there, they stopped, and they got out, and the guy said goodbye to his son his son's like 20 something and he's gonna see him for the last time ever he's like tell my mother i love her i think the guy's being a martyr and he's going to god is what he's gonna do he's gonna do something crazy so it's the last time the father sees the son then they drive into this village and the reason he brought chris with him was he couldn't get into the village himself because the village is secured with all kinds of police and military so they got fake papers that chris is an american doctor and he's there to see patients in the village So they get to the gates and the cops let him in because of the passes he has and the papers he's got and the documentation he's got that he's a doctor. Meanwhile, he's not a doctor at all. But that's what they used him for to facilitate them getting into this village. And they get in the village, they go in this tent and there's this guy, his wife is there with a newborn baby. So then he gets to see his newborn baby for the first time ever. The lady's like, who's this guy? And he's like, don't mind him. And then they eventually leave and they're driving back through the desert And they stop, and all of the militants are praying to Allah, and they're just in the middle of nowhere praying, and he's holding like a little daily morning prayer vigil with him. And Chris is standing over by the truck, and he's just looking at a lizard in the desert, this orange lizard that's beautiful, and he's hidden behind the truck on the driver's side, and they're on the other side, 50 yards away, doing this prayer vigil. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I mean out of nowhere, a missile comes from the sky, a bomb out of nowhere, like a drone dropped a bomb and it just obliterated 12 of them, all of the militants blown to pieces, all of them eradicated from the earth, just absolutely eviscerated, done, gone, boom, kaput. They're blown into 5 million pieces. And then all that's left is one of them, a guard who was standing over by Chris with his gun. He got on a motorcycle and took off. He just said, I'm out of here. He drove back wherever he came from on his motorcycle. Chris is standing there with the truck, and he's got the keys to the truck. And he somehow, because of the truck, somehow survived this missile blast. So the bottom line is Chris ends up seeing that the head militant guy whose son left to be a martyr and the guy that had the baby with the woman after the bomb exploded and killed everyone and blew all their arms and legs off and left a crater-sized hole in the desert enough to put a couple of trucks in. Every one of them lost their arms and legs. Meanwhile, he's laying there blown to pieces too, but he's still alive. And instead of leaving him there to die, which he would have, Chris drags him into the truck, drives him all the way back to the village, 
saves his life. When he got out of the car and the guys have guns pointed on him, all the militants that are left behind in the village that didn't go on this trip to this other village, they get over, see that their main leader is in the truck all blown up and beat up. So they drag him out and take him inside. Meanwhile, they let Chris leave. They're like, get out, beat it, go. Just get out of here. So they let him leave with Emma and the remaining three guards they got with them. Of course, the one guy that's their main guy, Omar, he's been shot in the chest. He's barely hanging on by a thread. And they get in the truck, and they're two cocaine trucks, and they bolt out of this town, and they let them leave, so they still got their drugs. But as they're driving away, they don't make it 10 miles before Omar dies, bleeding to death in the backseat of the car. Emma can't save him, and he's now dead. So eventually they make it through the desert. They drive for hours and hours, like 24 hours. And the other truck breaks down, the one that they stole with the two Coke trucks. It breaks down. They all end up in the Coke trucks. So they make it all the way to Morocco. And then they end up in a warehouse down by the water, down by the port. And these dudes let them in. So they made it. They made it to a destination in Morocco with all the blow. And they seem to have arrived where someone might be helping them. Then they go back to Monterey, and they got your boy Manuel, the sergeant, the dirty sergeant, filthy, fake, wannabe, God-following, cartel, drug, mule, training hundreds of Monterey boys, young men in their teenage years, training hundreds of them to be soldiers, to be militants, to be in their army, to be in their drug cartel army, that they're going to run Monterey. And they're just training every one of them. I mean, they're putting them through the grueling army, brutal workouts like you can't even imagine. So Manuel's building his army and training the soldiers. He's going to take over Monterey. Meanwhile, in his spare time, he always brings the pregnant chick that he killed her husband. He keeps bringing her money. Then he tries to lure to his little born-again church and convince her that she needs Jesus. And she's like, I don't want any part of this. And she walks right out of the church. She's like, I'm going home. I thought you were taking me out for ice cream. Instead, you bring me here because he's a wacko. He spends all his time at church listening to this preacher sell him on God. And then the rest of the day, he goes around killing people. I mean, which is it? He thinks he's doing God's work by killing everybody in town and being a drug dealer. So meanwhile, when Manuel, the dirty sergeant, is done training his soldiers and they graduate and they become part of the firm, they roll around Monterey, rounding up people, innocent civilians, and lining them up and killing them dead just to get their rocks off. So they're just going around killing people left and right. And then the news picks up on it and starts talking about all these people getting killed and that this narco group, the firm, is the ones doing it. So now they're getting attention from the media, too. So then Manuel takes two enormous duffel bags filled with millions in cash that they've stolen around Monterey from every neighborhood and all the drug sales. Take it to the Liros brothers' mansion, and it was supposed to be payday. The Liros pay him for all their services, and they make a lot of money, and then he distributes some money to all his soldiers, right? He goes and delivers him the bags of money, and then the Liros guy says, we don't have the money for you today. He says, don't worry, we'll get it, and you'll get a bonus. And then Manuel's like, all right, no problem. So his soldiers are tripping. Why didn't we get paid? He's like, don't worry about it. We're going to go out and party. So they go out to party at that fancy hotel where they shot Chris and Emma's father, the most popular, expensive motel in Monterey with the fancy restaurant where all the bullets flew. And they go there for dinner. They get a table. They start partying. They're drinking tequila. They're drinking wine. They're drinking champagne. And then look who comes in, the Lira brothers with their hot wives and dates. So they're over at a fancy table, and Manuel buys them three of the most expensive bottles of champagne in the house. And he brings it over to their table and he's like, enjoy. 
And then the Liras are looking over at these dudes, knowing that they're the army, knowing that they're the grunts that do all the dirty work on the streets. They toast them and say cheers to them and accept their champagne. And it was just a real uncomfortable situation seeing the Lira's faces that their soldiers were at the same fancy restaurant they were in, partying their ass off when they worked for them. Then Manuel finally takes the hot pregnant chick out for ice cream and instead takes her to a nightclub where they end up dancing and even slow dancing and gazing into each other's eyes. And it looks like it hasn't taken long for her to figure out that her rabbit is dead. And now she has a man that's been giving her money left and right for months. And she might be falling in love with him. She might just need to move on from rabbit and hang out with Manuel and make a move to another man. Meanwhile, the man she's now falling in love with and slow dancing with is the man that killed her husband. How lovely. Manuel takes Chikatita back to her place and she invites him in where things look like they're going to pick up in intensity. Chikatita lures Manuel into her bedroom, her lair. She lays down on the bed. He says he'd better leave. She says, don't leave. Instead, feel my baby bump because the baby's moving. He's moving. He likes you. Put your hand on my pregnant belly. Don't leave. Stay with me just until I fall asleep. The baby never lets me sleep. I need you here to comfort me. Just stay for a little while. It's painfully obvious that Chikatita wants Manuel to make love to her. Manuel eventually leaves after Chikatita falls asleep and he gets into his car and makes a phone call to his soldiers. And he's been told that Indio's hurt. Manuel's main man Indio has been shot in the neck. He's dead and now Manuel is livid. And he looks at one of his other soldiers and it looks as though he's going to blame him for losing Indio. Manuel shows up to see his dead man, India. Now he's living at the other vampires. They call each other vampires, the army, the firm. They're going to take his body from the scene. It was a war over the weapons, and it was with their own people. So they went to pick up the weapons for the Lara's henchmen. And the Laris men met the army, the firm, with all the weapons. And Manuel wasn't there. He was out on his date with his pregnant Chikarita. Chikachita. And then all I know is he wasn't there. So they went out to do the job on their own. And Indio got killed in the gunfire. They screwed up. So several of the soldiers got injured and shot. So they bring the injured to Chikatita's house. And the pregnant Chikatita starts helping Manuel with the injuries of the vampires, a.k.a. the soldiers in the firm. Many of them have been shot in the ear, the arm, the leg, the torso, and Chikatita's trying to save lives. Suddenly, while she's helping them, her water breaks. Chikatita's having the baby boy. Manuel rushes her to the hospital, telling her to breathe as she's screaming and having contractions and agony into the hospital. And he's supporting her as though he's the new father because he loves her. It's obvious that Manuel is in love with Chikatita and vice versa. All along, Chikatita thinks she's having a boy, but suddenly the baby pops out and surprise, it's a girl. And Manuel was not in the room. They made him stay out of the room. The doctors deliver the baby girl, but he's so excited that she's had the baby. And he actually, I think mentally thinks the baby's his. He's losing his mind. We all know who the real father is, Diego, rabbit who Manuel killed with gunshots to his chest and then took over his girl's life and fell in love with Chikatita. And now, back to Calabria, Italy. 
There's only two episodes left of zero, zero, zero. And we'll find out what happens with Stefano, who faked the gunshot. He shot himself. And by the way, the guy that sewed him up knows he lied, knows that he shot himself and told the other mobsters that Stefano is a faker. So then they roll in old man Don Mino, the godfather, the grandfather, the blind, cataract-eyed godfather. And they're looking for Stefano. No one can seem to find Stefano, of course. After he had his wounds sewed up, he fled. And his boys got him out of Dodge. But they know that he shot himself. They know that he's a liar. So the godfather, the grandfather, sends for Lucia and little Miko. They've been on the run since their daddy, Stefano, warned them to get out. So she went through hell and high water to get free. Little do they know that her husband has been fed to the pigs because his henchmen have figured out that he's a liar and that he shot himself. So they dragged him out into the country and beat him with a pipe in the face and killed him and fed him to the pigs, or so we believe that he's dead. But it turns out Stefano is not dead. He was thrown into the pig pen, but he's alive. And now his captors have his wife, Lucia, and little Miko, and they're beating her senseless. And Stefano is now willing to do whatever it takes to please his captors, including giving him all the cocaine money. Stefano says he knows where the cargo is. And now the captors are gonna let him out of the pig pen. Meanwhile, Lucia and little Miko are being held captive and being treated very poorly. They've been thrown into a room with nothing but mud on the floor and one single mattress where little Miko lies sleeping. But his eyes are open now and he's scared to death. Meanwhile, his father finally gets out of the pig pen and smells like pig cable. So Chris and Emma are back in Morocco waiting to finalize the cocaine deal with the Italians. Some of the Moroccans, like the man in charge of the whole deal, has a smoking hot daughter that I think Chris wants to tap. And of course, Stefano has showed up in Morocco with the guy that's kidnapped his wife, Lucia, and little Miko. They're the Benetton family that used to be loyal to Don Mino, but now they've turned on him because of greed. And even the father told Lucia that, I'm sorry what I'm doing to Don Mino and to you and little Miko. But these two sons of mine are blood, and I must support them always. And then Lucia tells the father, Benetton, that he's going to, and his sons, have all of their throats slit by Don Mino, and they will all die. But Stefano has gone to Morocco to finalize the cocaine deal with the Linwoods, Chris and Emma. But Chris is hanging out with the young Moroccan hottie, and it looks as though he might get a piece. The young Moroccan hottie's name is Amina, and her father is Yasser, like your boy Yasser Arafat. Check out. So Amina goes in to cut a deal with a bunch of money with one of the locals in Morocco and leaves Chris out in the streets, but Chris walks around the corner having neck spasms and sees her in a window doing the transaction. And I think he's actually just checking her out because she's a smoke show hottie. I like to call her Amino Acid. Of course, later that night, Chris and Amina and Chris's sister Emma go out clubbing. They party hard all night and get their swerve on. And Chris is partying with Amina. And they are dancing the night away. And you can just predict that there's going to be some clothes shed. And eventually, all of the clothes are shed. And then the lovemaking happens accordingly. And there's just massive amounts of action in the crib. 
But suddenly, late in the night, three, four, five in the morning, Chris starts snapping in the hotel room and losing his mind. Chris snaps and loses his mind and throws a fit, starts breaking furniture, screaming and yelling, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair, grabs his clothes and walks out on Amina from the hotel room and leaves her stranded, walking away down the street. He doesn't want to admit that he has a debilitating, deadly disease to Amina because he loves her. And he knows that he can't have children with her. And he can't get married to her because he's going to die. So he knows he can't have relationships that last. Chris is troubled. So he walks the city streets late at night and a dog barks at him. So Chris walks all the way through the city all night long and back to his hotel where Emma's waiting for him when he opens up the door. She hugs him, super worried about him. Chris has been so angry and Emma asks, what's happened? And I was right. He says to Emma, I'm dying. That's what's the matter. He can't be in love with someone knowing that he's going to die. And he has no future. He can't drag someone into that den of iniquity. He knows he needs to take his meds, which he hasn't been doing. He's been having seizures and neck tweaks and suffering through the disease. It's eating at his body and mind. And he can't have a good lovemaking relationship with amino acid because she'll be left with all the baggage and no lover. Want to light the lamp on DraftKings and FanDuel this NHL DFS season? Then join DailyRoto.com and learn from the best daily fantasy sports players. Get updated fantasy hockey projections for NHL DFS, line combinations, and build stacks for tournaments in the Daily Roto NHL DFS lineup optimizer. If you are playing daily fantasy hockey without using Daily Roto, you are doing it wrong. Enter the promo code ACTION for a 10% discount. That's promo code ACTION for a 10% discount. Hey everyone, it's Michelle Williams, and I love being able to share my story with you on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, where my guests and I get real as we share the ups and downs of our mental health journeys, and I'd love for you to join me. I'm still on my own journey, but I want to be transparent with you, because as I was posting all the highlights of my life on social media, I was breaking down. And too many people fall victim to the picture-perfect image of the high life, so I created a space to discuss the good and the bad. We can laugh, man. We, we gonna learn. And most of all, I hope to inspire you to go on this journey with me to better mental health. This is gonna be your church, your turn up, and everything in between. So join me on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, a safe space for every kind of person. Listen to Checking In with Michelle Williams every Tuesday, a part of the Black Effect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Emma tells Chris she wants him to fly home from Morocco to New Orleans, and she'll go on to Calabria, Italy, and finish the deal. Chris says, I want to go with you. Why are you mad at me, Emma? Why have you turned on me, Emma? There's a lot of tears in the room. Emma loves Chris. Likewise, Chris is so troubled with his disease and with the cocaine deals and the world travel and all that he's been through. It's torturing his soul. Meanwhile, in the morning, Emma's down by the port watching her crates of cocaine being loaded on a ship, trying to get everything out of Morocco toward Italy. Chris, meanwhile, is back at the hotel having tremors. He can't even pour a cup of coffee with the shakes being as bad as it is, and then suddenly a knock on the door. And we know what that door knock is. 
It's Stefan's kidnapping henchmen and the girl that they kidnapped. Meanwhile, Stefano and his friends threaten Chris to bring them to the cargo. And they take Chris in a car and drive toward the port where Emma's already watching the cargo being loaded on a ship. Things are getting very tense. So suddenly Emma's seeing her container pulling up to be put on the ship as Chris and Stefano and the kidnapping henchmen drive to the port. Now they're arguing in the car and there's tension. Chris is acting as though he knows where he's going, but the driver is confused and Stefano thinks that he's lying to him and driving him in the wrong direction and not toward the port where the cocaine is. So Emma watches her container get put on the ship and she's satisfied. She's with the Moroccan, the father of the hottie Amina, who Chris tapped the night before. They drive away from the ship as if there's no problems at all. They've seen what they came to see. Their container being put on the ship, good to go to Italy. So Stefano's car pulls up at the warehouse where they were keeping all the blow. Meanwhile, the blow's not there. Chris is in the back seat of the car in all kinds of trouble with Stefano. They're treating him very poorly, shoving him around, ordering him around, pushing him around, yelling at him. Chris is playing them like fools. They open up the warehouse, they go in the warehouse, and the warehouse is empty. Now, Chris is going to find himself in all kinds of hot water with these people. They're going to be very angry, and they're going to blame Chris. And basically, they're going to pummel him to death. As Stefano is beating Chris, bloodying his teeth and knocking out his teeth, and punching him in the face. Chris tells Stefano, your shipment's already left. You lose. Now Stefano's losing his temper. And now the guy that has his wife and son kidnapped, he's starting to yell and argue with Stefano. Now Stefano goes back for some more and beats Chris to a pulp. Now they've got him on the ground and they're beating him senseless and breaking his nose and knocking out his teeth and sculling him. And he is near death. So Stefano takes Chris's head and smashes it off the cement five times. So clearly Chris has to be dead or at least have complete brain damage for the rest of his life. If he somehow comes out of this, it'll be a miracle because there's no way that he would ever get up after the sculling he just took. Stefano split his head open on the cement and bashed his skull in. A beautiful scene of violence and anger all over not being able to get his hands on his billion dollars worth of cocaine. So Stefano and his thugs leave Chris to die in the warehouse and they show him laying on the floor with his brains spewing out in blood all over the warehouse floor and his face smashed in and all of his teeth missing and his nose broken into a million pieces. He's clearly dead, but I've seen him die like nine times on this show, so I trust nothing anymore. Now we're back in Monterey, where Manuel, the Sergeant of Doom, is with his Chikatita and her little baby girl in the hospital after she's given birth. She's treating Manuel as though he's the father, even though he's not, because, of course, Diego, little rabbit, was killed by Manuel, 
and he's now stolen his woman and his child as if it were his. We're finally down to the final episode of Zero Zero Zero, unless there's another season, and I don't have time to wait. So we're going to try to get this all in now. The mother wants Manuel to stay with her and the baby forever. She asks him, don't leave, don't leave. What are you doing? Don't just give me the baby and run off. I love you. Then he tells her he's a bad person. She doesn't believe him. And then he says, I killed your husband. And her face almost falls off as she's holding the baby. And now Manuel has made his point and will leave her in the hospital. And she looks like she's seen a ghost. And now she's bawling into her baby, crying, knowing that Manuel is a killer and that he has played her all along. The entire time he was full of shack because he had killed her boy, Diego. And he finally admitted it because he's such a sinner and a phony in front of his God. So Manuel leaves the hospital and starts rolling with his vampires, his army. And they all get in their trucks with their guns as if they're off to kill more people for the Leras. Suddenly, they're at a huge birthday bash for the Leras in their million-dollar pad. Everyone's having a good time, enjoying themselves. There's clowns and balloons and cakes and all kinds of food and beverages, and everyone's running around the estate having the time of their lives. But suddenly, it appears that the vampire army, the battalion of thugs running Monterey, under the guidance of Manuel the Sergeant Slaughter, is going to show up at the Laris because they didn't give them their paychecks the day the money was due. It's time to pay the Pied Piper, so instead of getting their money, it appears they are going to show up at this birthday party and kill everyone in sight. It's a beautiful idea when you think about it. It appears that Enrique and Jacinta Lara are in big trouble, including Jacinta's wife and, of course, Enrique's wife, Maria. They are all doomed, as the vampires are already slaughtering people. They've killed all of the security guards in a swift act of terror. They came swooping in and rappelling in and shooting the guards all in the head quickly. So the security has been eliminated, and now the vampires are strictly killing everyone in sight. This is gruesome and utterly fantastic. Enrique has now been shot dead. Jacinta running for his life with his son. They yell, he's getting away, he's getting away. Not for long, though, as Manuel has him tracked down. He's not going to let him live. They've taken control of the party. They're going to kill everyone in sight. They're now going into the mansion to get Jacinto and kill him. Oh, they kill another security guard. Jacinto's the guy that told him, don't worry about your paychecks. We'll pay you at another time. Send him to the end of the line. Lick it. Manuel and his boys go upstairs looking for Jacinto, who's hiding in the mansion. They've already killed Enrique Lara. The Lara brothers, the most powerful cartel cocaine dealers in Monterey, Mexico, and in fact in all of Mexico, but not for long, as Enrique's already dead. And they're going to find Jacinto, and they're going to kill him too. They're looking all over the house for him. And now they've found... Jacinto, who's begging, don't hurt us, please. The husband and wife are hiding in their master bedroom, and Manuel has a gun to his head. Now the wife needs to shut her face with her children, her three children in her arms. Manuel says, shut your mouth. She says, don't hurt us. He keeps telling her, shut up, shut your face. Please stop talking, shut up. 
So now Manuel's going to have a talk with Jacinto after they take his wife and kids out of the room. He says, I let most of your guests go. He slaps him in the face. I'm talking to you. Pay attention to me when I'm talking to you. Now the cartel king is very humble and very shy suddenly. He says, your family's staying here. If you deal with us, nothing will happen to you. If you give us what we want, you're going to be okay. And then Jacinto says, I can give you $32 million immediately. I'll make one phone call and you'll have $32 million today. He begs them, don't hurt us. Manuel thinks about it for a little while and says, make the call. Get me my money. So Jacinto called to have the people bring $32 million to him. And immediately after he gave the address of where to bring the money, Manuel pulled out a gun that he had in his back pocket, not the AK-47 that he had in his other hand, but a handgun. And this time he blew Jacinto's head off, clean off, with one bullet right between the eyes. So he got what he wanted. He set up the chick that's going to bring the money, and he killed him in the interim. So now Manuel is the most powerful man in Monterey. He's killed all of the cartel kingpins, and he is now the most powerful man because he runs the military, the vampires, the firm, if you will. He's now Chuck in charge, and he's going to try to get his hands on $32 million. So now they're back in Italy, Calabria. Grandpa's hiding out in a lair. No one knows where he is in an abandoned villa. Stefano's with the Benetton guy that wants to kill him, that's trying to get all the money from him, that's been dragging him around the world from Morocco to wherever. They're having salami and wine before they find a way to kill Grandpa, Don Mino. Don Mino orders one of his henchmen to go get Stefano. He now knows that Stefano is back in Italy, in Calabria. Meanwhile, Stefano's looking at his shoulder injury, which is still bleeding after all this time. Then they bring Lucia and little Miko to see Daddy. Lucia's beaten to a pulp. Miko is scared. Lucia has a black eye. Meanwhile, they take Stefano again. They give him a gun and tell him to go see his grandfather and kill him. The Benetones know if he doesn't kill him, they're going to kill his wife and son. So they finally get Stefano to see his grandfather, and they drive him there, and when he gets there, he's supposed to kill his grandfather, but guess who's there? When they show up to see the grandfather, Emma is with the grandfather in Calabria, Italy. She comes out of the castle at the last second, and Stefano looks like he's going to poop his pants. Eventually, they show the scene where Emma found Chris dead in the warehouse. His girlfriend... Amino had been held captive and told them that the Italians took him. So she knows that Stefano is the one that killed her brother. So Emma tells Don Mino that Stefano killed her brother and tried to stop the shipment of the cargo, which is the shipment of the blow. So Emma says to Don Mino, you give me your grandson and I'll give you the container number with all the blow in it. Otherwise, you're never going to find the blow. So he has to give up his grandson because he knows that she's telling the truth that Stefano killed Chris, which he did because he's a piece of shack. Then Don Mino stabs his own grandson with a switchblade right in the stomach, right in front of Emma, and just jacks him up right in the heart. 
He stuffed him right in the heart and killed his own grandson. It was a beautiful power move to please Emma, who had lost her brother Chris at the hands of the dirty Italian grandson Stefano, who was nothing but bad news the entire show. And Don Mino cries with blood on his hands over his dead grandson. Remember, Don Mino killed Stefano's father as well, so he basically killed his own family, the father and the son. She gives Don Mino the number for the container, and Don Mino tells Emma he's going to transfer all the millions to her father's account. Boom, done deal. Then Don Mino sent his henchmen to save Lucia and little Miko, and they killed the Benetton brothers. They had their heads blown off when they were trying to escape with Lucia and the little boy from their pig farm. So they got all of the problem solved. Benetton's dead, Stefano dead, Lucia and Miko saved by Grandpa. And they picked up their container of blow, brought that back into the mountains of Italy, where they're going to make... A fortune, 27.5 per kilo, five tons of blow. And of course, the last thing they show is all the peppers being dumped out and all the kilos of cocaine being taken out of the container and get ready to sell that Rio. Check out. And they show Don Mino looking over his cocaine operation as they're slicing and dicing up all the kilos and distributing them and having people pick up their share of kilos and stashing it in hay, stashing it in motorcycles, stashing it in bags and cars and trucks and everyone coming and going and getting their kilos. They have tons of blow and they're going to make tons of money and all of the mob families will be loaded and make their money off of the cocaine. Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy with Don Mino. They congratulate him for pulling off the deal of the century and getting his cocaine finally. Too bad he had to kill all of his family to get it. The last thing they show is Don Mino being nice to little Miko, his super, super grandson, I guess. And then they go back to Monterey where Emma's rolling through the airport. I gotta say that the Mexican angle of this show, 000, with the Sergeant Manuel and all the drama down there with his army, I thought it dragged it down. It would have been a five-star show, but I'm gonna give it four because of the Mexican angle. I thought it sucked. It was stupid. All of the church stuff sucked. All the baby stuff sucked. And all the armies training and killing each other and going after the cartel family, the Lara's. I thought all that was just absolute nonsense. They didn't need to have it. The Italians and the Americans, that was good enough. In the end, they show Emma sitting with Manuel, and she's sitting between the two cartel brothers that he blew away and killed both of them. So she gives Manuel $32 million and then asks for 2,000 more kilos of blow that she needs in three weeks to send to Russia. And he says, no problem, I'll set you up. He gives his phone number to her and then... He looks around the room and says, I'm powerful, I'm running the world now. And Emma says, I'll talk to you soon, see you later. I mean, it was too hilarious, the end of it. You gotta be kidding me, that the little narc-ass backstabbing sergeant from the army takes over the cartel. And she walks back to her car, stepping over dead bodies all throughout the billionaire's home and smiling at people. And she's ready to continue on with her life and her cocaine dealing, her dead brother already in the ground and she seems relatively happy in the end well good for her way to go emma
Fans love the FOTB pod because there's all kinds of action, including Colombian and Mexican and Italian and American cocaine family shakadoo. Want to be the next Daily Fantasy Millionaire? Dunk on your NBA DFS competition with DailyRoto.com and dominate on FanDuel and DraftKings this season. Compete with the pros with DailyRoto.com, Optimizer, and the most accurate projections in NBA DFS, plus lineup alerts, breaking news, late swap support, and much more. Save 10% on winning NBA DFS advice with promo code DUNK. Visit DailyRoto.com backslash DUNK to learn more. Ever wondered how a book gets made into a movie? Or how to master the art of cooking? Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. On our podcast, we're going to be serving you a fresh perspective of the entertainment industry alongside our favorite celebrity guests. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon.